The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, um, Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, episode 141, special Christmas edition. That's why I'm wearing my Ain't No Messiah t-shirt. It's the only time I ever wish that I still attended church, just so I could wear this fucking shirt. But that's a whole nother story. Instead, uh, we were scheduled to do Beyond Brightside chapters 25, 26. But seeing that it is Christmas holiday time, we're going to go with two Christmas-themed stories. The first is from Twisted Reunion. That's Surviving the Holidays. That story is a lot of fun. Um, and Untold Mayhem, we are going with Dead to Me. So those will be at the end of the episode. But next week, we'll go back to our regular schedule with Beyond Brightside 25 and 26. So um, hopefully you guys are dealing with the holiday stress better than I am. Uh, better, I think, I don't know. I think it's good to realize that a lot of people are dealing with that, especially this year, last year, last, last two years, just another shitty holiday. Um, doesn't have to be, I mean, it still could be awesome. You still get together with your friends and family and all that, but depending on where you live, depending on your views, depending on all that other shit, there's just a whole nother level of stress, uh, not only for this season, but for our life in general, the entire time that's one of the talks i've been having with uh my different doctors dr licata was making a you know a big point about that it's just like our overall stress levels have increased tremendously um because of splits in families uh all the time together differences in opinions on vaccines uh covid fucking lockdowns just everything politics so I know that's torn up a lot of families, caused a lot of stress. Everything you see on the news is fear and loathing. So, um, yeah, I think that's important to remember, important to consider when, you know, lots of times I might hesitate to do uh, self-care and stuff like that, thinking I want to get shit done, but and just bury that stress, bury all that stuff that, um, you know, is going on. But, you know, we do need to address it. Yesterday was awesome. I was able to start the morning off with yoga. My buddy George came over. Um, you know, it was such a great start to the morning. Always hard thing to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to take an hour out of my day right now to breathe and stretch and do yoga. Um, or even lift weights on the other days. And, you know, sometimes that can be tough. But I also appreciate just how important it is for me, um, you know, to do, be able to better deal with all that stress. Uh, one of the things... Yesterday, I had a couple of people send me articles from, I think it was NPR. There are two different articles on CTE. One was on people that believe they have CTE, but they didn't play professional sports, which is 100%. That can happen for sure. Uh, the other one is was uh, looking at treatments, how you know so many different people are capitalizing on this fear of CTE and offering all these different kinds of treatments maybe they work maybe they don't work you know whether they're supplements or whatever else so i had friends sending me that asking me my opinions i don't like talking very much about ct because honestly i don't know so much and like i was just at uh my neurologist the other day i didn't speak with him but uh i went back and got another qeg but i was talking to the neurotech very knowledgeable doing research at ucla uh and he was talking about how it is just there's just so much out there. There's so many different opinions. There's so much that needs to be known, uh, making incredible inv- advancements. But 
I would say right now, you know, I don't recommend people go around saying that they have CTE because one, it's not, it hasn't been detected in you. You might have CTE type symptoms, but those are probably all like traumatic brain injury symptoms or from toxins or whatever. So there's something that is affecting your brain health that are causing these symptoms that are the same as CTE symptoms. Maybe it will, if untreated, it probably will develop into um, CTE or some type of dementia. Uh, you know, that's just the way it's going to go. If your brain health continues to deteriorate, I think that's why uh, NFL players are four times as likely to um, have Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's just anything where you have traumatic brain injuries, toxins, anything that's impacting your brain health, you can have all these different symptoms. You never know where it's coming from. You know, you could have emotional trauma that can cause all these issues, different issues too. So instead of self-diagnosing, you know, go to different doctors, see where your brain health actually is, and then treat it. You know, whether it is through a type of, and it's probably hitting it from multiple sources. Like on mine, I did my hormone regulation. That was huge. And then I did my, uh, the whole time I was doing behavioral therapy, I was, I was going to counseling, uh, which is important too, because we got to break our old ways of thinking. Um, I've tried hypnosis. That's what I did after the book came out. Uh, then also fixing my, uh, my spine with uh, a form of chiropractic. I think that was important. And then the neurofeedback for sure was huge. So, um, you know, I hit it at different levels. And if I hadn't done those things in the correct order, like Dr. Gordon says, he doesn't believe the neurofeedback would have been as good for me if I hadn't done my hormone regulation first. I do believe that. Uh, but like Dr. Lakata said, you know, everyone is different. Not, not everyone's going to be able to have do neurofeedback or not at this point, you know, in their healing, um, you know, maybe they need to do something else. So very interesting to see. Uh, I will keep, you know, and that's one reason why I'm excited about doing my book because I've already measured for, so the last two years, I haven't been doing any testing or anything like that. I was just writing the book. All the treatments were from before that, but now I'm picking up tests. And again, I'm able to put these tests against where I was at the end of two years ago, and then we'll be able to document how I'm improving on all these other things. This time I'll be documenting my sleep better and everything else. And because it's not just me and I'm doing different friends, you know, I want to be able to show like, okay, look, this worked on this person, this worked on this person, this worked on me. These things didn't seem to have any effect. Here's something you might want to try out. You know, I will be interviewing my neurologist. I'll have a list of questions like, okay, these are my concerns. These are my questions. These are all the things that I didn't cover in book one. And I'm having him read book one so I can get his opinion on all my approaches. You know, it's like, okay, what was wrong in that book? What did I, you know, or, or what needs further explanation? What wasn't clear? What other messages should we get across? So that is one of the big things that I will be focusing on next year. The other thing that I'm going to be doing, I talked about it last week, but that's the Try Not to Die board game. Uh, we had a, our first official Try Not to Die board game board meeting. Um, it was with my niece, Bailey. She's 16. My daughter, Olivia, 13. And my son, Jake, who is eight. Um, after five minutes, we realized that Jake wasn't going to be a good fit. He was all for getting paid for this meeting, but then he was pretty upset when there were no ice cream, no snacks. He couldn't just walk around. He actually had to help. And uh, so I was telling him, I was like, okay, I'll just pay you right now. Instead of paying you $20 for the full hour, I'll pay you $5. And he was pretty upset about that. And I'm like, dude, so if you don't want to work on it, you don't want to work on it. And on 
and just stop it right here. Uh, he was uh, still a little upset. He's like, but <laughs> then he's like, he's like, I don't want anything to do with this book and uh, or game. I forget what he said. And I was like, that's cool. I was like, you're fired. And uh, he's like, no, you can't fire me. And I was like, yeah. So it was a good lesson. I was like, look, don't ever tell your employer you want nothing to do with what they're telling you to do. Um, although it's not a good fit, you can go play your games. We're going to develop the book, the game. So it was pretty awesome. Uh, Bailey and Olivia play a ton of games. They like to, they love escape rooms. They do the hunt a killer. They have very, they're both, both very intelligent, uh, as is my son. But uh, yeah, so it was cool. It was cool to see that they really liked my idea. They can see it. Um, they helped me with certain things. I wasn't sure whether or not we're going to use the same characters and which books are, which books aren't, how closely the game will resemble the books. It's probably just going to be loosely based off of each of the worlds. Um, trying not to die in Brightside, like that expansion pack for the game will take place probably in Brightside during the escape, but it won't be anyone that we've seen yet. Um, maybe some of the boots are the same characters and stuff like that. Uh, Try not to die in the pandemic. I'm pretty sure the game is going to continue from where the book ends, where these kids just got off of the boat and they're going to go into the city um, to see if anyone's alive, uh, how much pandemic has ruined things, to try to get medicine and save people on the ship. Um, not sure about Grandma's house yet. I think it's probably going to be a continuation of the story from those two characters. So everyone's going to be different. Uh, came up with some really cool new things too, uh, things that can happen to the characters. But I have a lot of faith in this. I know, I know the Train to Die idea is a good idea. I think the book series will be successful. I think the game will be successful. Um, and that's why I'm going to be putting the time into it. So that should be fun. Um, the only other thing I have planned for 2022, well, getting back into jujitsu, uh, continuing to improve my health, overall health. Um, need to tighten up some things, which is nice. Uh, I was talking with my friend George about that because we've been lifting pretty consistently. We get together like, let's say, let's say four days a week generally. For like three days of lifting, one day of yoga. You know, we want to add a little bit more. But then now, and our food has been getting better. But now we're both going to be like, okay, let's knock out this. You know, let's get rid of this thing right here. We know that's this thing is something that I like to eat at night. Let's cut that shit out. He's going to cut that out. We can start working on our health and our, uh, you know, just diet a little bit better. So just making small changes. Um, and but yeah, so I think that's probably those are those are the biggest things that I am focusing on for next year. Um, you know, and then being grateful for everything that has happened this year. I think that's important too. A lot of people look at the year like it was a complete waste. No, it wasn't a complete waste. Not for me, for sure. Um, you know, I think I got closer with my family, spent more time with them. I have a much better balance between work and family time, uh, where I take off a lot more time now, not doing as much work. That's cool. Um, I realize they're more important. And then, yeah, valuing friendships. I think like what I do with George and with the lifting, the working out and the talks that we have, like something like that is huge. So yeah, very grateful for that. Hope, hopefully you guys have a friend like that that you can talk to, that you can bounce ideas off of, that you can talk to without being judged. Um, I think that's super important. I know with COVID and everything else, it's probably gotten a little bit harder. I think a lot of people have that online, but that online shit, I don't know. It's it's cool, but whatever. It's not not real, real. So, I don't know, guys. That's about it. I still need to... Well, it's Christmas Eve right now. Um, well, it's in the morning. 
uh, this afternoon I will go see my parents. Tomorrow I'm seeing the other side of the family. Should be good. Uh, hopefully you guys are doing something fun as well. But make sure you gather your family around the radio or wherever you're listening to this and have them hear these wonderful Christmas tales. The first one is Surviving the Holidays, Twisted Reunion, narrated by T. Quillen. The second is Dead to Me in Untold Mayhem. Not sure who the narrator is because I didn't look, but I'll try to put it in the notes. All right, guys. Hopefully you guys enjoy these stories. Have an incredible Christmas, holiday season, whatever the fuck you celebrate. I'm all for it. All right. Later. Surviving the Holidays. At 12 years old, Paul began to suspect he was jaded. He wasn't entirely certain that he knew what it meant, but that's the word that popped into his head and it felt right. What other explanation could there be for a kid hating Christmas? Paul just couldn't wait for this day to be over, the squeals of his brothers and sisters rummaging through presents, only making it worse. He didn't want to be this way. In fact, he envied his younger siblings. He wished he could feel their joy, but in the Harrison household, when you reached a certain age, Christmas lost its innocence. Presence no longer mattered. That time had come for Paul and his older brother Ron, who was slumped next to him on the couch. They had both seen too much and remembered too well. Jonathan and Francis, the blue-eyed twins, rattled boxes to their ears, trying to guess what was inside. Emily fluffed a bow that had gotten smashed in the stacking, and Tina, who just turned five, was begging for help. Somehow she'd gotten herself tangled in a string of garland. Mother let out a little snort from the kitchen. Ron, help your sister. Ron grabbed the end of the garland and twirled little Tina around until she was finally free. From the laughter and cheer, you'd never know the family had lost five children on this very day. There were reminders, though. Their stockings were hung above the chimney. Their homemade ornaments dangled on branches, the slips of paper with everyone's names, and Tommy's misshapen star on the top of the humongous fake pine. But these reminders were nothing compared to Emily's missing index finger or Jonathan's wheelchair. Ron wore a long-sleeved t-shirt to hide his scars, but Paul had seen them before. The 15-year-old looked like he'd run naked through a field of barbed wire. And finally, there was Tina and the puckered pink skin around her little glass eye. She was the only one who didn't remember how she'd gotten hurt. Paul envied her the most. Only five minutes to midnight and Christmas would officially begin. They'd vote and open presents. Paul wondered if other families had stupid rituals like theirs. Francis stood up. Paul had seen his mangled face a thousand times, but it always looked worse at night in the shadows. Francis said, I'm going to clean up this year. Who wants to bet? Jonathan said, It's a little hard to tell. Yours are pretty heavy, but I bet you anything Emily's are worth more. He said, she asked for jewelry. Emily pushed Jonathan's wheelchair. You can't tell people what I asked for. You know the rules. Jonathan stuck out his foot to keep from crashing into the wall. 
Francis dragged out a box from behind the tree. Check this one out. It's the biggest one. It must weigh over 50 pounds. No way, Jonathan spun back and said. Maybe Mom got me the weights I wanted. Francis said, it's Paul's. Paul ran over and read the tag. It's a mistake, he said. That's not mine. It has your name on it, Emily said. It's not mine. I only asked for clothes. Francis tried to shake the present, but it barely budged. These are some heavy clothes. Only clothes. That's all I asked for, I swear. Ron said, why wouldn't we believe you? Because I'm telling you, it's not mine. Jonathan did a quick count. It's yours. He pointed at a pile of boxes by the ottoman. And these are your others. Paul told himself weight didn't mean a thing. Two years ago, the wrapping of one of Brian's gifts had been torn, revealing a new computer box. But inside were only rock-filled socks. Less than a minute to midnight, and Paul still hadn't made up his mind. Sometimes it was better not to, just go with instinct. But this year he felt he should give his decision a little more thought. Now that Tina was old enough, things could get interesting. A loud, ho, 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 bellowed from the hallway, and out came Paul's mother and father, both dressed as Mr. and Mrs. Claus. His dad adjusted his fake beard and grabbed his gut. Merry Christmas, children. He slung a red velvet sack over his shoulder. It sounded like metal clanking inside. Mrs. Claus handed everyone a pencil and a piece of paper. The kids scattered and started scribbling. Paul looked over at Emily, who covered her slip. Tina asked, Why do I have to vote? I don't want to. In a deep Santa voice, Dad asked, Do you want your presents? She shuffled her feet and nodded. Mom guided her to the table and helped her hold the pencil. Do you want two extra presents? Tina's eyes brightened. She nodded even faster. Then vote for whose presents you want. She eagerly looked around the room. Anyone's? That's the rule, Mom said. But that's not fair, Jonathan whined. She doesn't even know what her vote means. I do too, Tina said. She's five now. Those are the rules, and it's already after midnight, Mom said. Dad took off his Santa hat and bopped Tina's head with the fluffy white ball. Hurry up, he said. Tina plopped to her knees and scribbled a name. The other kids dropped their slips into the hat. Emily dropped hers as if it were on fire. Ron tossed his in. Paul still hadn't decided. Tick-tock, Paul, his mother said. Francis threw down his pencil. You do this every fucking year. Just write down a name. Mom smacked the back of Francis' head. Language. Ow! Paul felt everyone's eyes. Could they have actually picked him this time? He figured he'd had another year, at least. He'd always sworn if his name was called, he wouldn't be like the others. He'd go out with a fight. But now his legs began to shake. Paul remembered he was the only one who cried, because he'd only gotten one Christmas present. It's how this all started. Dad shoved the hat into Paul's chest. Paul finally dropped the name. It seemed to fall in slow motion. Mom took the hat and stepped into the middle of the room. Okay, listen up. We're only counting this once unless there's a tie. 
She pulled out a handful of the slips and read the first. We have one for Paul. She held it up for everyone to see. She turned the next paper over and sounded fairly surprised when she read Paul's name again. That's two? Paul's name was called a third time. He sunk back into the couch. One more vote, and that was it. But he still had the chance for a tie. His mom looked at the next slip and turned to Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, honey, she said. Can you read the rest? Paul said. It doesn't matter, Jonathan said. I just want to know, Paul said. He's stalling, Emily said. Mom looked at the last two slips. Wow, six votes. That's unanimous, Francis said. Dad grabbed Paul's arm. You voted for yourself? Paul stared at the slips covering the table. He always voted for himself because he didn't want to feel responsible. He just never thought it'd actually come back to hurt him. He'd assumed he was the likable one. Paul's mother picked up the red velvet sack and dropped it on the table. His father continued to berate him for not being man enough to write down someone else's name. Paul stood there watching his mother dump out the gleaming contents of the sack. Okay, she said. Who wants Paul's presents? Tina and Emily dove for the table. Jonathan rolled over Francis's foot. Francis punched his brother's neck. Are you stupid? Paul leapt toward the table, knocking them both out of the way. He reached for the wooden handle of the jagged bread knife. Hey, he's supposed to wait, Tina said. Paul's father grabbed his shoulder and dug his big, meaty fingers deep into Paul's clavicle. Instinctively, Paul spun, bringing the knife up and slicing through the Santa suit. The sound of the blade carving through his father's stomach was muffled under the padded costume, but he was no longer the invincible titan of Paul's childhood. His father took hold of the knife, tried to stop Paul from twisting it, but Paul dropped a little lower and drove the blade against the bottom rib bone. His father began to falter. Paul pulled the knife out, slicing through his father's palm. He went to stab his old man again, but a blinding white pain ripped through his lower back. Paul whipped around, his knife tearing through the air until it met Francis's cheek. Francis cried out and dropped his butcher knife. Paul turned back to his father, who was now on his knees. Another blade tore through Paul's arm, but he concentrated on his father. He stood over him, stabbing in and out of the soft, bulging skin at the back of his father's skull. The blood poured out and dripped through the fake beard. Paul's Achilles snapped and he fell. He saw the bubbled flesh of his forearm and raised the knife to all five of his brothers and sisters. He didn't want to hurt them. He knew they felt the same, or at least that's what they wanted to believe as Ron plunged the wooden skewer into Paul's chest. Francis drove his knife into Paul's arm. Emily stabbed his right. No longer able to keep his grip, Paul's knife clanged to the ground. Tina stepped forward and dragged her tiny steak knife across his throat. Paul smiled and took the weapon from her trembling hands. Gently, he made Tina turn and face his pile of presents.
dead to me. Leonard stared at the red left-turn arrow, wishing he could will it green. He was running late, and, judging by the thick layer of snow accumulating on the Chevette's hood, he had spent about five minutes waiting to get through the light. This was what he got for leaving his house on Christmas Day. New York City traffic was always bad, but on holidays it was unbearable. He had tried explaining that to his mother, but she argued he lived less than five miles away and could walk it in an hour. If he couldn't make such a short trip to spend the day with her, he wasn't fit to be called her son. Christmas used to be his favorite time of the year, the entire day. Just him and his mother, eating cookies and sipping cocoa. But things had changed. Although he still loved his mother, he was always on edge around her, praying she wouldn't make him mad. Ever since he turned 44 in August, his tolerance for his fellow man, which had truthfully never been that great in the first place, had rapidly deteriorated. The slightest things enraged him, and instead of letting things slide, he was quick to act. Leonard looked out the passenger window to see if those lights were still green. The idiot in the lowered Honda next to him was creeping into the intersection, angling his front bumper into the left turn lane. Leonard glanced at the teenage driver to see if he was really intending to cut him off. The guy wouldn't look in his direction as he inched forward until both front tires were in the crosswalk. Leonard checked his rearview mirror for coughs. He sat up in his seat and looked across the intersection. There was a homeless man standing on the corner imploring generous souls for cash. The passing cars were finally coming to a halt. No cops anywhere. He didn't want to have to handle this himself, but he had no other choice. The light turned green, and the Honda shot into the intersection, whipping into the space Leonard Chevette would have been in if he had tried to race the guy. Instead of following the painted arc, the Honda sped toward the corner as if the light post was a giant magnet drawing it in. With a thundering boom, the car plowed into the light, its front end hugging the thick, immovable post. Once he was certain there wouldn't be an explosion, Leonard ignored the yellow light and entered the intersection. The Honda's rear end obstructed all of the right lane and parked of the second. With some skillful driving, Leonard managed to squeeze past the wreck without damaging his paint job. The beggar was pinned between the pole and the car, his chest and head lying on top of the crumpled hood. How tragic that an innocent person had to be killed in such a needless accident, just because some idiot was trying to save time. Now that imbecile's head was stuck to the shattered windshield, his smashed face embedded in the safety glass. Whether the punk was rushing to some Christmas party or hurrying to church, he should have been more considerate. Leonard had witnessed dozens of fatal accidents in the past month, four just this morning, and absolutely none of them were caused by a considerate driver. All of the drivers could have prevented their deaths if they had been so careless and irresponsible. The accident was completely forgotten by the time Leonard turned onto his mother's run-down street with its dilapidated houses, most the size of his one-bedroom apartment. He wished he could afford to move her into a nicer neighborhood, but that dream went out the window when he lost his job at the post office back in July. Leonard drove several blocks past his mother's house before he found a parking spot. He walked back to her house, 
carrying her present with both hands, thinking about his new custodial engineer position and just how unfair it was. He arguably had the hardest job at the law office, yet he was lowest paid and received absolutely no respect. The people in charge had no idea how difficult and unpleasant his position was, much less how indispensable. No one there ever picked up after themselves, and he was positive no one would show up for work if he neglected the filthy floors and allowed the trash to accumulate. Custodians should bring home more than what those sharks did, but he would have been more than happy to make what he had at the post office. All the wishing in the world wouldn't get him a raise. Leonard cleared his mind and rang the doorbell, and the minute it took his seventy-year-old mother to shuffle to the door, he imagined all the terrible, hurtful things she might say. If he fortified himself by mentally abusing himself before she could, it took some of the sting off her cold comments. He couldn't allow himself to get mad at her. Not on Christmas. The door opened. There was her scowl, her round, wrinkled face, surrounded by her halo of wispy white curls. She swiveled her body just enough so he could squeeze by, shoving him into the house. You're letting all the damn cold in. Hurry up. Good to see you, Mom. She slammed the door behind them and waddled into the living room. Mumbling loud enough for him to hear, she said, 4.30. No respect. Wait on Christmas. Sorry, Mom, but traffic was real bad. She plopped onto the squished side of the flowered couch, the plastic cover crinkling. You've used that excuse for the last four weekends. She nodded toward the package he was still holding. Put that on a table. Leonard set her presents on the coffee table. There were a couple accidents. People died. You've used that, too. Funny how many people are supposedly dying when you're on the streets. I'm not lying. Oh, you would never lie to me. Sarcasm was his mother's favorite friend, a sharp knife she loved to twist and turn. Leonard took a deep breath and counted to five, blew it out. I lied once. You mean I caught you once. That's all it takes to destroy trust. It was one time. I was embarrassed. You should have been. You were warned about doing that sort of thing. She grimaced, shook her head, those curls bouncing. Disgusting. It made me sick. I was twelve. Curious, he said absent-mindedly. All his life, his mother and others always said that he made them sick. He had never taken it literally. Or maybe he should have. You should have known better and shouldn't have lied. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, I'm not lying about the accidents. Of course you're not. But that doesn't change the fact that the food's cold now. You cooked? Cookies. They were warm 30 minutes ago. I like them cold. Then get them. You know where the kitchen is. The cookies were lined on a tray. Thick blue and pink frosting. No question they were store-bought. Leonard took a bite out of a blue one used his tongue to wipe the frosting from the roof of his mouth. He told himself his mother meant well. Her coldness was a result of the cancer. She wasn't always this mean. And even if she had been, she had the right to be cruel every once in a while. She raised him on her own, and he wasn't the best child in the world. Instead of causing her more heartache, he ought to thank her for all the sacrifices she had made for him over the years.
I didn't tell you to bring the whole tray. I don't want any. Leonard set the tray on the coffee table and eased onto the recliner, a cloud of dust puffing up around him. But it was still better than sitting on the stiff plastic covering the sofa. Put them back, I said. Maybe I'll eat them all. You're fat enough as it is. I'm just a little pudgy, Leonard said. Pudgy? Ha! You're fat. That's probably why you're not married. That's not why, Mom. Because you're fat and you like to touch yourself. Leonard sighed. One time. It was one time. Then why'd you lose your job for stealing those nudie magazines? Because you touch yourself, she said, shivering in disgust. I didn't steal anything, Mom. Leonard pinched the webbed area between his thumb and pointer finger, while in his mind chanting, Home. To his mother, he said, Frank was a goddamn liar. You watch your mouth. On Christmas, she said with a huff. I'm sorry, but he had it in for me. He said all Italians were idiots. Seeing she didn't take the bait, he added, and that Sicilians were the worst. Ah, convenient. What? Calling a dead man a liar. Someone who can't deny it. It had been stealing because Leonard only took home the Playboys and other adult magazines that had been deemed undeliverable. Think what you want, then. I know it wasn't stealing. Yeah, they just fired you over here, say. And maybe you quit. Thought you'd be more fulfilled as a janitor. Mailman to mop boy had not been an easy transition, and she knew it. All those mind-numbing hours pushing a broom, cleaning toilets, emptying waste cans, picturing Frank's stupid fucking face and muttering to himself, You're dead to me, dead to me, dead to me. He repeated this mantra all of July until the third Saturday of August. It was ten minutes after six the start of Leonard's shift, and a few hours after the firm's retirement party for the number two partner ended. Vomit in the sinks, diarrhea in the toilets, used condoms in the boardroom. That had been the moment everything changed. A new level of hatred, as Leonard chucked the trash can across the lobby, forgetting it was full, beer bottles and wine glasses shattering on the tile. Never before had he hated someone with such intensity. You gonna just sit there? His mother asked, interrupting his thoughts. Don't tell me you're on drugs. No, Mom. Just thinking. About Sunday's paper. How it listed Frank's time of death at 6.10 Saturday morning. Well, all that heavy breathing makes it sound like a stuffy bear. You having heart problems? Nope. And neither did Frank. Death was attributed to natural causes from one of the healthiest guys Leonard knew. The same went for his high school bullies, Tommy, Leroy, and Richard, who were six feet under after Leonard focused on them for two weeks. The breathing keeps me calm. Been practicing it in yoga. She cackled. You? Yoga? I stream classes on my laptop. You wear leg warmers? Leonard didn't blame her for laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor's orders, Mom. You said your heart was fine. It's just an expression. It's what I need to stay calm. And what good does that do you? Never heard of anyone doing anything worthwhile by staying calm. 
Experiments on a couple of choice teachers convinced Leonard it wasn't a coincidence. By the end of September, his powers were so polished, he took out each new subject within two days. Learning to harness the hatred had radically sped up the process. I can be dangerous if I'm angry. She rolled her eyes. Did you start taking karate? During October, he honed his methods and could eliminate someone in under an hour. In November, he was down to ten minutes, but he was finding it more and more difficult to find people that had really pissed him off. He'd even brought out all his yearbooks to jar his memory about any wrongdoings. November saw the advent of the 32nd termination, something Leonard was incredibly proud of. December was when the problem began. He had sharpened his mind into a perfect scythe, yet he lacked control. If Leonard didn't have his guard up, the slightest thing would set him off. And if he was set off, the offender was instantly dead. Why do you even come over if you're just going to sit there? Leonard shoved the anger down. Come on, it's Christmas. So? What does it matter what day it is? You'll always be a disappointment. Her face turned a bright red, whether it's Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or if it's Easter or Christmas or Veterans Day. You'll always be you. I wish you would never... Stop! Leonard shouted a fraction of a second before his mother collapsed on the couch, the impact of her head a dull thud on the armrest. Leonard unclenched his fists and took five deep breaths, walked over and closed those anger-filled eyes. He picked the pink cookie off the tray and devoured it, with a reminder he could not risk hating himself. He wasn't sure of the scope of his newly developed power, but it was still way too unpredictable to risk turning on himself. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.